Father God, I thank you for Rich. I thank you for uh, just his heart for you and his heart to serve you. And Lord, I just pray that this evening as he speaks to us, Lord, you open us up to hear what you've got to say. Lord, you fill him with your spirit that you uh, speak through him. And Lord, that we just don't just uh, learn about you, but Lord, we're uh, changed by you through what Rich has to say. So Lord, just bless us, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rich, so much. It's lovely to be with you. My name's Richard, as you've heard numerous times. And if you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's really great to be able to speak to you. Um, let me just clear some of this stuff off of here. <clears throat> I don't know how your week has been, or what the conversations have been like that you've had this week. But I would have thought it's a fairly safe bet to assume that most of us, if not all of us, have had conversations this week with people who are walking through the storms of life, like we've been singing about. That we've had conversations with people this week who are finding life difficult at this particular moment. Maybe it's you that's finding life particularly difficult at this moment. You feel like you're walking through the storm. This week, on Monday, I um, had a conversation with a mum uh, who um, was, her, she was taking her young son to have some tests in the hospital because he had a, 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 a disease in the top of his thigh bone, which meant the bone was disintegrating and he wasn't able to do all of the things that young children love to do. And that, to be honest, adults love to do as well. He wasn't able to, he couldn't walk very well, he couldn't run, he couldn't jump, he couldn't climb a tree all of those sort of things that children take for granted, her son wasn't able to do. And um, I had a Facebook update from a friend um, in, uh, who, I, who I knew from Cambridge, and she's in her 40s, and this week she had surgery for breast cancer. And she updated us on Facebook as to how that had gone. And I've had other conversations this week with people who've been struggling with finance or struggling with relationships and I dare say that if we went around this room and we said what have your conversations been like this week most of us would say yeah at some point this week we've either had a conversation or we have interacted with somebody in some way who are uh, who for them at this precise moment life feels like a storm life is hard and they're walking through it over the last couple of weeks we've been doing um a series where we've been looking at three words beginning with C. So we started off, Chris talked a couple of weeks ago about us being community. Um, last week, Mark talked about us being committed. And tonight, I want to talk a little bit about us being compassionate. And we're going to do that by looking at a passage from the book of Acts, which I'll read to you in a moment. But every now and again, through the book of Acts, um, Luke, who wrote the book, just kind of lifts the lid off the early church community. He lifts, the, it's as if he has like a little Wendy house and he just lifts the lid and opens the back of the house and it gives, and it gives us a little insight into the common life of this fledgling Christian community in Jerusalem. And he does that on a couple of occasions in, in Acts chapter two and in Acts chapter four. You know, that community was a community that knew what it was to walk through the storms of life. They were a community that knew what it was to be persecuted. They knew what it was to be vulnerable. 
they would know what it was to have disputes and, and to, be, um, to be executed for their faith, tortured for their faith. They were a community that knew what it was to, like, to walk through the storms of life. But one of the things that characterized that community was compassion. That community was compassionate. They were compassionate upon one another and they were compassionate towards the world that was beyond their immediate community. They were a community that knew about real life and their life together was characterized by compassion. So let's read, if you've got a Bible, let's have a look in Acts chapter four and we're gonna read from verse 32. It says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses or houses, sorry, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's interesting that when Luke um, lifts the lid, as it were, on this community, he does it following an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter two, at the end of Acts chapter two, it's a really well-known passage, you'll probably know it. Um, he, He lifts the lid on this little community And he does it just after the Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. And there's been this huge outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit has come, and then we see this community that has been completely transformed because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, if we read the the couple of, one verse really before the, the passage I've just read to you, it says this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. At the end of, in Acts chapter four, when Luke lifts the lid on this community, he does it after there's been a, 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 a pouring out, a second pouring out, if you like, of the Holy Spirit upon that community. And we see what impact that outpouring has on that community. We see the impact of the Spirit at work in the life of the early church. And I just want to highlight three things from this passage, three things that, this, that characterized the common life of this community once the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. And the first thing, and hopefully as we go through these three things, you'll see that the theme of compassion kind of flows through each one of them. But the first thing that characterized this early church community was unity. The first thing that characterized them was unity. This is what it says. All the believers were one in heart and mind. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples and when he prayed for those who would follow in their footsteps, i.e. us, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we call it his high priestly prayer. You can read about it in John chapter 17 or you can read the words of it in John chapter 17. When he prays for his disciples, he prays for unity. It's one of the key, it's one of the main things that he prays for when he prays for his disciples, unity. When he prays for the church that would follow, when he prays for us, at the heart of his prayer is a prayer that we would be one, that we would be united. And then he says something that's interesting in that prayer because he says, he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And then he says, so that the world might believe. He prays that we would be united so that the world might believe. Isn't that interesting? There's something about the unity of the Christian community that sparks faith in the world. Now, I don't exactly understand how that works, but I think there's something about the work of the Holy Spirit in a group like this where there's unity, people see something that's irresistible. People see an irresistible community. A community that is one in heart and mind. It's what Jesus prayed for for us, that we would be one. And when the Spirit's poured out on this fledgling community in Jerusalem, the first thing that characterizes them is that they're one. They're of one heart and mind. It seems to me that all of the, the New Testament, or, or most anyway, of the New Testament illustrations of the church all rely on there being some kind of integral unity. So Paul talks about us being a body. Chris spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. The church is a body. It's one unit made up of many parts. For the body to function, there has to be a unity. The parts have to be working. The parts have to be working together for the body to function properly. Paul and Peter both talk in language that speaks of us being like a building, a temple. A building relies upon like a, co- a sort of coherent unity within its parts for the building to stand and for the building to function. There's talk of the church being like an army. An army is made up of many, many parts, but for it to function, it has to have a coherent unity. The New Testament speaks of us being a family. Every single person in this room in some way is connected because we are the adopted children of God. You are each other's brothers and sisters. I don't think that's just words. You are a family. We are a family. God is our father and we are each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. A family relies on unity for it to function. It relies on the different parts, members of that family being of one heart and mind. Has anybody had the misfortune today of stubbing their toe? You have one person. I'm so sorry. It's awful, isn't it? It really is an awful thing. Um, I assume everybody in this room has at some point in their lives had the great misfortune of, of stubbing a toe. There's two things that really irritate me about a toe stub. 
The first, the first is that it always seems, it happens in virtually always seems to happen in the same place, and you kind of think, oh man, why didn't I learn the last time? Do you know what I mean? Like, why didn't I pick up on this the last time, and, or the last ten times? Why have I done this again in exactly the same place? Stub my toe in exactly the same place. So frustrating. And the other thing which I find sort of weird, in a kind of slightly entertaining but also kind of horrible way, is there's always a pause, isn't there? There's you stub your toe. And then there's a little pause where you go, oh man, that is going to really hurt. And then suddenly the pain comes upon you and it, is, it can be crippling at times. It's interesting, isn't it? It's funny how just how an injury to, the, to a, the tiniest kind of part of your body can completely shipwreck what the rest of the body is doing. And if you're going out of the door to put the recycling out or something like that and you stub your toe on the way, man, it completely disrupts what you are doing. The recycling will be, you know, it, you will, there will be a delay in the recycling being put out. But, you know, when we stub our toe, <laughs> it's a useful reminder, isn't it, that actually our bodies, there's an interconnectedness about our body. When the smallest part of our body is injured, it can completely shipwreck the task of the rest of the body. The church relies upon that interconnectedness. When part of the body of Christ, when part of the family of God hurts, actually the whole body hurts. When our toe hurts, our body hurts. When our wall is falling down, we're in danger of losing our roof as well. When the left flank of the army is crumbling, the whole battle is at risk. When my sister or my brother are going through the storm, the family hurts. There's an interconnectedness about us that we really need to keep in the forefront of our mind. And one of the things that characterised the spirit-filled, fledgling Christian community in Jerusalem was that they were one. They were of one heart and mind. They were united. And that unity isn't just displayed in a statement of faith or a sort of doctrinal statement or it's not just, you know, it's... It's not simply displayed in, in words. The unity was displayed in action. It says all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. The unity that interconnected was demonstrated through care, through love for one another. Care and love for the most vulnerable, the most needy amongst them. The second characteristic of this church here in Acts chapter 4 is that it says that with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. The second characteristic I think is that, is that the resurrection of Jesus was testified to by this group of Christians, even at considerable cost to themselves. They were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I don't want to take a long time over this one, but sometimes um, you may find that in church life there can be some churches that that really emphasize 
the, kind of the gospel, as in they really preach for salvation and for people to come to faith and it's people's eternal destination that's at stake and so the testimony of the resurrection, that's absolutely essential. That's the key thing and I, and I completely agree that that is essential. And then there can be other churches who, who kind of, yes, that's, they agree with that, but actually it's, the, it's people's, it's, it's all about social action. They, all, they want to, about to care for people in the here and now, to feed the hungry, to look after the sick, to clothe the naked, those kind of things. And sometimes you can end up with this kind of dichotomy of, of those that are all about testifying to the resurrection and those who are all about social action. I heard um, a guy called Rich Nathan speak about this. And he just gave such a funny illustration. I thought it was just such a good illustration. He's a vineyard pastor from the States. He just gave such a good illustration that I thought it's always, stru- it's always sort of stuck with me. He said, to argue about which of those is the most important is a little bit like sitting in a plane at 40,000 feet and arguing about which wing is the most valuable. Which wing would you rather lose of this plane at 40,000 feet? And the reality is I wouldn't really want to... I mean, sorry about this. Some people are flying in the next couple of days, and I apologise to you for this (laughs) poorly timed illustration. But actually, when I'm at 40,000 feet, I'd like both wings in place. You know, I'd like the right wing and I'd like the left wing. Both are critical to me landing. And you know, in the church, the testimony, the testifying to the risen Jesus and caring for the poor and the needy are essential. We need both. We want to be, as Rich Nathan said, we don't want to be an either-or church. We want to be a both and church. We want to testify to the resurrection and we want to care for the vulnerable and for the needy. And the third thing that characterised this church and obviously I've hinted at it massively already in what I've said, is that they looked after the poor and the vulnerable, those that were needy, and they started within their own community. In verse 34 it says this, there were no needy persons among them. That is an incredible statement, isn't it? What an incredible compliment to pay to this early Christian community. There were no needy people among them. In Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 4, God <clears throat> says to Israel that there shall be no poor among you because I will bless you. God is a God who reveals himself as someone who is um, compassion, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. In the very character of God is compassion. And he said to his people, there will not be poor among you. A sign of my blessing, a sign of my presence with you is that there will be no poor among you. And then he goes on and he actually explains that actually it's about them caring for the needy and the poor and the vulnerable amongst them. That's why there won't be any poor among them. Because they will care for each other. They will look after those who are going through the storms of life. And Jesus perfectly embodies this, doesn't he? Jesus said that he had come to preach good news to the poor. He came to preach good news to the poor. That means those who um, were spiritually poor, but it also means those who are actually poor. 
Jesus' life embodied what was in the very heart of God. And so Jesus spends his time with the poorest of the poor. He, he heals lepers. He spends time with beggars. He spends time with those on the margins, those despised. He spends time with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. He raises the profile of women and children in his society by allowing them to be taught by him, to sit at his feet, and by welcoming them so they could be blessed. Jesus' life was good news to the poor. Not just the spiritually poor, but also the actually poor. For us, for the church to be authentic, we as a community, we have to be good news for the poor. We have to be. The spiritually poor, but also those who are actually poor. We have to be good news for the poor if we're going to live out the gospel. So how did they do this? How did this early church care? Well, actually, in this passage, it all seems very straightforward. It's very practical. Actually, as the church expanded... um, we see that the church began to develop ministries and, and kind of more like strategies, I guess, for caring. So in Acts chapter 6, we see that certain people are appointed in order to care for the poor. And we see later on in Acts, we see Paul um, raising money, really, for the church in Jerusalem. So we see that it, it develops as a ministry. But here, it's incredibly practical. It says this. From time to time... Those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And then they give an example of Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It starts by saying from time to time. I don't think this ministry is something that, or this call is something that is supposed to be an overwhelming burden upon individuals. Mother Teresa said, if you can't feed a hundred, feed one. It starts by saying from time to time. I think it says that because I believe that from time to time, the Holy Spirit prompted individual people to raise money by selling possessions, selling land, selling houses, to raise money to provide for those who were needy within their community. From time to time, the Spirit prompted individuals to give as they were able to give in order to care for those in need. I don't know about your experience, but my experience is that from time to time, God will just lay something on my heart. He might lay a person on my heart. Maybe I have a conversation with someone and I see a need that's there. And I feel that God is prompting me saying, Rich, I want you to care for this person. Just, it may just be for a few days, it might be for a few weeks, it may be for longer. I want you to care for this person. 
Sometimes I've um, had things like, well, I've just known that God is prompting me to give. So it's not just about me caring with my, uh, what I have, but maybe caring with my money. God laying it on my heart, which I want you to give to this or to that. Sometimes I've experienced the Spirit just laying an amount of money, saying, which I would like you to give this amount. And I don't sometimes know what it is that I'm to give it to, but over the course of the next couple of weeks, a couple of things will come up, and I go, oh, okay. From time to time, the Spirit lays these things on the community's heart, and they respond in devotion, sacrifice. They give of themselves to care for the needy among you, among, among them. I want to encourage you. Would you be just open to what the Spirit is saying to you? in terms of caring for one another? Would you be open to what he's saying when you hear someone who's in need? or you know, just, just be open to what he's saying and try and follow those promptings. Let me finish. Oh, finally, I should just, on that one, I just want to say this, that actually it then talks about them giving this money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Actually, when we give, we give to God. We give to God. That's what we do. We bring an offering to him. Say, God, you use this. You use what I have, my car, my time, this amount of money, my home, my food in my cupboard. I give it to you. Would you use it to help me to care for the poor amongst us? Let me just finish. I just want to look at a little passage from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. I will be really quick, I promise. This is just to conclude. It says this, 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Let me just say a couple of things. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Our compassion for others begins with a recognition of God's compassion for us. That God loved you so much that he gave his son to lay down his life for you. That he sacrificially gave himself because he loved you. We give out of an experience of God's giving to us. Secondly, it talks here about that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We are a family. We are a family. And sometimes being part of a family means that we have to make little sacrifices for each other. That we have to be prepared to lay down our lives for those within our family. And so, St. Paul's, I just want to encourage you tonight. Let's, let's be a church that's compassionate. Let's be a church that recognizes the love that God has poured out in our lives. And let's look out, let's care for the needs of the most vulnerable, the most needy within our family 
and also as God leads in our wider community. Shall we stand together and let's pray. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. Father, I thank you for these little insights into that early church. Thank you for their compassion on each other. And Father, I want to pray this evening that you would birth in us a vision for compassion. Lord, that you would birth in us a vision that we would be a family, that we would be a community that loves each other. A community that is united by that common bond of love. That we would care for our brothers and for our sisters. Holy Spirit, would you come, would you ignite that passion? Would you give us that vision? that we would be an irresistible community, that the world would see the light of Christ shining amongst us and be drawn to him. Someone had a picture earlier of um, this church being like a building, well, it is a building, but uh, with light just shining out of it, this community. And as he shared that, I thought part of that just felt like actually part of that is because of the love that we have for each other. Part of that light is is due to the community, the love, the care that we have for each other. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you help us to be that community, I pray. Lord, would you help us to be conscious of when you're prompting us to be the person that steps out, the person that cares, the person that gives.